0: Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. I'm Daniela, and this podcast is about my personal and also about a lot of other people's enthusiasm for art. Art can touch on all parts of life, and therefore we talk about all parts of life. I believe art has a special power, and I hope to get you on board and to tell you interesting stories you enjoy listening to. For international listeners, the podcast will be held mostly in English. We're recording via the internet, so please excuse any glitches and sound quality. Episode 29. Recorded March 8, 2021. My guest today is Elizabeth D., co-founder of the Independent Art Fair and director of the John Giorno Foundation. She ran her eponymous gallery in New York City for 18 years and founded the X-Initiative, from which Independent developed. And Elizabeth says she's now seeing herself in a variety of roles. She's a collector, an artist, a curator, a teacher, a strategist, an advocate, an entrepreneur, a publisher, a writer, an advisor. Welcome, Elizabeth.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to see you.
0: <laughs> Reading this, it's like you're a Renaissance personality and you dived into almost every aspect of the art world and um before going deeper into that i would like to know how all of this started for you personally i read that your first interests actually were books and that you also played the cello and what led you to wanting to spend your life in the field of art how did it start for you
1: well i think i think that question brings me back to my childhood i'm so lucky to have the parents that i had who were middle class, but found a way to bring uh, my younger sister Megan and I uh, to cultural education early. Mm-hmm. And so, from the age of five, I was studying classical music, but first at piano and then cello, and I was uh, studying classical dance and uh, taking art classes. Mm-hmm. So I was very active as a kid, uh, participating in that way. And um, I think. The biggest impact for me was my art classes and being able to have that outlet at an early early age, which stayed with me my whole life. Uh, I never really gave it up. And the second thing is to play in a symphony orchestra, which I did for many years as a cellist. And, And that also enabled this kind of collaboration in making something or reinterpreting something that I found very powerful and I think has always stayed with me. The book collecting came later. The book (laughs) collecting was sort of the first collection, which I still have uh, quite an illness for Mm -hmm. the book collection came when I first got my first job, you know, packing groceries when I was old enough to get a job at 15. Mm -hmm. And uh, I spent all of my savings and my allowance from and my my paycheck on uh, used bookstores in Detroit, where I grew up, which was a fantastic place for uh, music and for books, actually, and that fueled my passion and that kind of added onto everything I was working on. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting
0: because playing in a symphony orchestra, so you took quite something of those structures there into your work in in later life when when you when you shaped your path in the art world.
1: Yeah. I I mean, even when I moved, I went to college in Massachusetts. I went to an all-women's college, and Mm -hmm. that was by choice.
0: Why was that by choice? Why did you choose that?
1: I am a scholarship kid. I'm a product of private school education, and I was lucky to... Uh, win an entry to Cranbrook Kingswood, which is one of the most important private boarding schools in the Midwest. And it also is the home of Cranbrook Academy of Art, which is quite world famous as an MFA program, Mm -hmm. which was an incredible place. And I'm so thankful that I had the opportunity to attend that school on scholarship. And that enabled me to continue my studio work because I had um, access to a ceramic studio, a, a, you know, a metal foundry. Mm -hmm. That's where I, uh, you know, a painting studio and really world-class teachers um, in that regard. So that was the positive outcome of being uh, in Detroit and having this incredible education. Being a student, not of privilege, Mm -hmm. had a great impact on me. It was really the first time attending Cranbrook was the first time I really was in a community with incredibly privileged people whose parents were running Fortune 500 companies around the world. And these children that I attended school with had a lot of access and a lot of uh, entitlement. And it really, particularly among the boys, It it created an awareness in me of class in this country, which was not something I was really exposed to um, coming from a small town in the Midwest and eventually moving to Detroit with my family. But it also impacted me in terms of how gender plays a role in terms Mm -hmm. of who gets to be heard and who gets to be at the table. And I found there was inequity uh, between the girls and the boys at my high school. Mm-hmm. And I was one, not the only person who felt that way. And a group of girls and I uh, formed a feminist reading group in high school to understand the problem uh, that we were encountering in school. And it made a profound impact on me actually on all of us, almost all of us ended up going uh, and selecting women's colleges as a result of forming this club. And it really was, for me, a very important decision. Uh, it was a decision to to try for four years to be in a in a space where I could explore issues of gender, issues of patriarchy, having come from a patriarchal system in high school. And I think that was really a great thing for me it enabled me to kind of think outside the box and freed me up in a lot of ways to be very creative in my work uh, as a student in college
0: that is so interesting and it's also what what i found that this plays a big role for you to develop your own voice i mean to to really also probably write your own rules develop your own voice you said yourself you became a gallery worker in new york as one of of the first jobs in the art world,
1: First, it was California.
0: Oh, first, it was California, okay? Yes,
1: because uh, oh, I should also tell you this. So, yes, you're right. there was some there's something about American women's education that is a very safe, nurturing place of support and gives an incredible amount of confidence to to girls and women. And I'm a huge proponent of single sexual education because I'm the product of it. And one of the things that uh, we were able to do at Mount Holyoke, which is uh, the college I attended, was we were able to take a semester at any other women's college in the country. And because I was so involved in art and studio art making, that was my major in college, I wanted to go study ceramics in California, which has an incredible ceramics tradition, particularly Northern California and Oakland and San Francisco. So, uh, Ron Nagel, the great artist, um, Ron Nagel was a professor at Mills college, which is another women's college in Oakland, California. And so I, uh, took a semester to study with Ron and to study and to focus more on my, on my sculpture. So I went out to California. When I graduated, uh, from college, I immediately went back out to the Bay area. Uh, because I had had such a great experience there. Mm-hmm. And my first job was as a receptionist for Daniel Weinberg, who is an incredible mentor to me still. And that was my first. I really have had almost every single job in gallery uh, gallery work that one yeah. could have. But it really started in California.
0: Ah, okay. But the decision then to continue that and going to New York was because at this time New York was like, the as it is now still the place to be for for a gallery?
1: Yes, I mean, growing up in the Midwest, I didn't have, I had exposure to a lot of culture, thanks to my parents, thanks to Cranbrook, thanks to a lot of things, but I didn't have exposure to gallery, Mm -hmm. gallery culture. Gallery culture was on the East Coast or the West Coast. And when you're in the middle of the country, you don't necessarily know about that. And when I graduated from college, I, I knew I didn't want to go into academia. I was still had an art practice. And so the logical step was to uh, apply to work in a gallery. And um, my favorite gallery was Daniel Weinberg because he represented some of my all-time favorite artists, including Richard Arschwager mm. and... Jeff Coons and uh, Sherry Levine and others of that generation. He was really the first to discover them when they were emerging artists. And so he really had been along with them the entire their entire careers, John Chamberlain. And so that's where I um, approached and my luck, it was all timing and luck. I, I mm-hmm. walked in yes. unsolicited, asked, you know, uh, Dan's assistant who was there at the reception if they had any openings. And she said, hold on one second. Apparently they had just opened a job that day. And before I had the chance to to leave, I was sitting down for an interview that I didn't expect to have. I just thought I'd be dropping off my resume. So that's, and I was hired and that's when it began for me. And it was a huge eye-opening process because I was able to be on the phone with Dan uh, to New York On a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So, and then I started flying to New York to help facilitate artists' uh, liaison work for Dan. Uh, And, you know, it just became clear that I loved what this represented. It was really about being in a team with the artists Mm -hmm. and working in a living museum. And it was it was unbelievably inspiring to me, and I knew I want to continue. And actually, it was with dance support that I moved to New York as a way to continue that.
0: I mean, that's wonderful. Like describing the gallery work as working in a living museum. So that's that was also the approach you took then uh, when you decided to open up your own
1: gallery. Well, the decision to open up my own gallery was, by virtue of there not being. A career track for me. Um, you know, and and again, I credit my women's college education for not seeing the boundary and just building the, you know, track where it doesn't exist without really much thought about it. I did move to New York. I was still making art. Oh, okay. I was trying to, you know, uh, work between these two places, my studio and then uh, working for galleries. My first job, in New York, was working for um, the former president of Pace Gallery, who opened his own gallery. And then I began to work quickly after that for Loring Augustine as a co-director with Michelle Macaron, who is in my generation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we basically split the you know, gallery roster, and she ran um, part of it, and I ran part of it. And I was at that point in my mid-20s. So was Michelle. And I didn't really understand at that point, what the next step for me would be, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess you could go to another gallery maybe and direct Mm -hmm. another program. And would that be a path? I started to question that. The other thing that I think remains to be said here is that in the nineties and early two thousands, we were paid absolutely nothing for what we did. And, and it was really unconscionable. And this was, this was a, a problem of the field, not a problem of any one particular gallery, Mm -hmm. and I came up against that problem because I don't have rich parents. Yes. And I was struggling to, to have the time to make my artwork. I was struggling to have the time to, to be able to afford my existence in New York, because New York was a very expensive city at that time. And when I moved to New York, just to put a finer point on that, mm-hmm. I couldn't afford an apartment. Okay. And I was, you know, I I was making maybe $18,000 a year.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So I was really like working, I was really working for free. And I found a paid by the week hotel on the Bowery. <laughs> wow, okay. Where mostly homeless people lived. And mostly men lived with a shared shower and toilet at the end of every hallway with about 20 rooms. And these rooms were so small, you could spread your arms from left and right and touch the walls. And there was just a cot for a bed and a sink at the end. And I I can't remember how much it cost, but I think it was like $100 a week in cash you paid by Friday at 5 p.m. to stay the following week.
0: And how did you endure that or wasn't it at that time so so horrible? Did you just feel that you would move on from there anyway?
1: I mean, I was in love with New York. Mm-hmm. I was fearless because I was young. It was run by an Israeli family that was so concerned for my safety that the wife of the owner would meet me in the morning to stand outside the hallway while I took a shower. Okay. So I had that support, which meant a lot to me. I still had my cello and I was practicing in that tiny room every day. And, you know, I had a sketchbook. And New York was my, my, campus, you know, Mm -hmm. and it was really a big part of my education and living alongside people who have addiction issues and have not had a home or a permanent address, you know, for decades was eye-opening to me. And it was something I didn't want to turn away from. I was there for other reasons, but by being there, I was able to save enough money to get my own apartment over a period of maybe... Four or five, six months. I can't remember how long I lived there, but I I'm forever grateful for that. It went okay. Uh, that nothing happened to me, but that I had that experience and it was quite a shock, you know, to be on Madison Avenue and uptown and sitting with collectors and during the day, and then that's where I was living. But I, I wanted to be a part of this world more than I wanted to fear for my safety. And it's just what I did at the time. And I have no regrets.
0: Do you think that enabled you to also run the gallery in a different way? So where it was also about enabling artists, about producing things that wouldn't have been produced otherwise, and not only doing the sales circuit, do you think that had an influence that how you looked at art and artists?
1: I mean, now looking back i have a different perspective obviously than maybe at the time and i think mm-hmm. most of us and i'm sure uh daniela you can attest to this too as a gallerist you don't necessarily have a grand plan yeah. you are reacting yeah. and taking uh, circumstances in and kind of trying to make the best of those circumstances and as women and at a certain time in the art world's evolution, we were part of something generationally and in terms of the ecosystem that we wanted to find the, our most true path forward in that. And I think that and you asked, how did I start the gallery? I, I, I tell you the story about the Bowery Hotel because mm-hmm. even though I was working at one of the best galleries in New York as a co-director, Later, um, you know, and that enabled me to at least live somewhat independently. By no means did I ever was I ever able to build a future? Yes. And I felt that I had to take a decision, which was, did I want to go into the auction houses and build a, a more lucrative career? Did I want to wait for the art system and the gallery system to grow and me I would grow with it? or did mm-hmm. I want to forge my own path? and trying to build my own economy. And just maybe it's the artist in me. Maybe it's just the timing where we had a lot of support at that time. You might remember also for emerging artists and being a young artist in the world was very, very interesting to many collectors. I felt like the time was for me to try and work with my own generation and figure out an economic path forward. And so that's how I started and I started just on Mercer Street between Prince and Spring in 1998 and I started through my friendship with an artist by the name of Les Rogers who had a loft an unrenovated loft on Mercer between Prince and Spring and he offered me part of that loft mm-hmm. to do exhibitions and we were part of the same generation and uh we were socializing with the same Generation of artists in New York, our generation. And I felt many of those artists didn't have a have a platform. And so now I wasn't even looking to represent at that point. I was just looking to create a laboratory for shows and then to use my secondary market experience that I had gotten from Dan and from uh Lawrence and Roland, particularly, to be private deal uh, to support this space. Mm -hmm. And that enabled me to. To work the way I want to work and to figure out what it meant to represent artists in my generation. Mm-hmm. And then only then then I met my first, my business partner, uh Carolyn Glasso, who has died sadly, who was an art advisor in LA, who said, You should have a gallery. This isn't a gallery. You should have a gallery. You should represent artists, and I'd like to help you do that and achieve that dream. And so it was only when I met Carolyn. Because keep in mind, I could not afford to even start a gallery in New York City. So it was really through this, these wonderful gifts along the way that I was able to start. And then once I started, that became an evolution. And I think from there, the artists that I'm most known for representing, who came into my life a bit later in the process, I think the ones that I was able to achieve the most for are the ones that required a different kind of representation. Mm-hmm. And I and I definitely think you're right, Daniel. It was because I wasn't coming from, you know, I wasn't coming from the inside.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think being an outsider uh, into the system was a great asset for me in terms of encountering artists who were innovators and trying to find ways to extend our platform to support them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what I've been able to do. And. But it was never like the conscious goal going in.
0: So it developed organically for you, but still probably it made it also possible for you to stay more fluid, to not have to just take the known gallery system and just continue it, but to really shape your own way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you have to hustle like Mm -hmm. crazy. You know, I mean, I think that for me, it was always... That was always an interesting part of being a student of the game of art dealing was that fact, the fact that you had to fight for things. But then I also think there's a very creative and curatorial part of it that is the art of dealing, which is encountering great artists who the world hasn't yet seen and being able to see that in them early. Or artists that historically are super relevant, but for whatever reason haven't been emancipated in the marketplace and being able to lobby and advocate for that. And that's something that as you do it you learn how the market forces are changing, what the levers are and where one can leverage and you know I think every gallerist can relate to this. You your gallery is built with each artists that you commit to and it really shapes your path it shapes how you move forward they're they're leading us we just have to see the opportunity and the potential
0: Mm -hmm. but do you think you yourself having been or being an artist that this equipped you better in just seeing some undervalued talent or some artists that can be rediscovered because you can see it from like the inside i find it so interesting because i'm talking to some people who do things differently in their field and what unites them is like for example jennifer higgy who studied as an artist and you studied as an artist do you think that this helps in in going deeper into that field
1: i don't know i think for me it was critical to thinking outside the box for certain artists like mm-hmm. Ryan Tricartan, for example, or this, this art world was going to shut those innovators out. You know, it required somebody who was part of the community to say, no, there's a place for this here. I definitely think there, there is a point in which representing artists, what became my art practice mm-hmm. and i stopped making work and it just happened very naturally and very organically and and i kept thinking this is feeding me as creatively as making a drawing today yeah or, or working with the kiln downstairs or you know making something i that that need to make things and to bring ideas into the world through this making process was completely satisfied by creative strategy around building a platform for artists work to be shown. And I don't know exactly, you know, why that happened to me, but you know, I still feel like an artist today. And I think it's because I have had this creativity behind what I do, even though I also really have a lot of market experience and expertise and I I really am a big follower of the art market. Mm -hmm. And I don't see them as mutually exclusive. I see them as feeding each other. I see the contradiction. I think it's complicated and therefore interesting intellectually. So I'm still very involved in that. But, you know, for at least a decade or longer when I was doing the real creative work of representation and kind of pushing those boundaries for myself and the field, i definitely felt like it was a creative practice for sure there was no playbook there was just no playbook for it
0: i absolutely can relate to to that and then was it when you i mean after 18 years that was an important gallery especially when when it came to content to production everything and then you decided to close the gallery and focus on other enterprises yes and what that, as you said, really just like an organic move? It was just the thing you had to do, or was that a painful step?
1: You know, it was, it was the easiest thing I ever had to do. Oh, it surprised myself. You know, keep in mind, we were talking about 2015. We were in an art market bubble that was getting bigger at the top end, Mm -hmm. not necessarily at the lower mid-tier end. We had a New York real estate bubble that was egregious in terms of how much it costs to rent space in the city in Manhattan. I had been in my gallery space on 545 West 20th Street for maybe 14 years mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and when i was there it was just me and anton kern and feigen gallery and a gallery building above feigen and by the time i was my lease was up i had david's runner had knocked down the entire lot next to me and built a monolith flagship headquarters for his gallery hmm and it was just like being in Blade Runner, you know, walking to Chelsea every day. I mean, it really was. It was. I like,
0: remember that. Yeah. Mm. There,
1: the, I don't think we ever saw such a hyper gentrification of a city in that fifteen-year period as we had seen there. And and the times had changed. You know, the next generation that was coming up weren't necessarily starting their own galleries. Mm-hmm because the structure of the gallery had grown and expanded to the point where you could have a career path within the gallery. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it wasn't that moment in the late nineties where I was sitting as co-director of Loring Augustine saying, where do I go from here? I, there was, I was never going to get commission. I was never going to get partner. It just Mm -hmm. wasn't, it's not because of Loring Augustine, it was because this no gallery was doing those things. And then, you know, that indie ethos that our generation had in the, you know, being Gen X and was very well suited to entrepreneurism and building, uh, independent galleries.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And now we were fast forward to 2015 and that wasn't the case anymore. Uh, the people that started their own galleries had a lot of backing. Yeah. So I, I made a decision consciously um, that there were things that I wanted to pursue in the gallery and I wanted to continue, but I didn't want to continue in, in that space. I wanted to find a space that afforded me some creative growth in terms of my curatorial ideas that I had. Um, I was always building a playbook of shows that I wanted to do, And I didn't always have the space to do them in. Mm -hmm. I had moved to Harlem about three or four years prior to that, maybe in 2012, 2012, 2011, I have to check the date on that. But I was a resident of the Harlem uptown community. Uh, A lot of our world people were living up in the neighborhood. And I really thought maybe it would be interesting to at this point in my life go out on my own and not necessarily be on the Lower East Side or Chelsea, but really just to have a space that stood alone. And Gavin Brown, my neighbor, was doing the same thing uh, at that time. Uh, He was preparing to open his space in Harlem. And I was a lot of galleries on the Upper East Side and in Chelsea who were interested in coming uptown. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was even helping a building concept where all of us would potentially go in into one building together. And that was a big project in 2015, in early 2016. So the idea was first to bring the gallery to Harlem, but to do it with other galleries. And I had found a space for that, but that space didn't end up working for everybody for lots of reasons so we were all interested in finding another space i had found another space on 5th avenue and 126th street but that space wasn't was only for one gallery it was 14,000 square feet on two floors and it was a perfect space for me but not for everybody else and then one thing happened that really changed everything and that was the the presidential election of 2016 in november of that year and you know, this, this possibility of Donald Trump becoming the president of the United States became a reality. And I can't tell you how that impacted New York and that impacted everything. And overnight, um, the gallerists that were interested in coming up to Harlem were like, I don't think now's the time. Okay. Wow. We're in, we're in shock. We're in shock. What is happening to this country? We have got to understand, get our heads around the situation that we are now in, that none of us could have ever imagined being in nine months ago. Mm-hmm. And I, my lease was up. So I said, I'm going to move forward. And I'm going to move to Harlem. And in fact, that decision felt more relevant for me after Trump. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, you know what? We've got a problem here and the gallery needs to have a relationships outside of its walls with a community and with a culture and i think this will be what i'll do and i'll do it on my you know do it on my own as i have done a lot of things and with a sense of this might be the last chapter or it might be the first chapter let's see okay and it ended it ended up being my last chapter but not after I had done some shows that I'm really proud of and some uh, published some books that I'm really proud of. And the only thing that really closed me down was, again, real estate. Our mm-hmm. building was set to be a development site. And I was not able to, to stay there for a 10 or 15-year period. I wasn't able to plan shows uh, because it was going to be developed into a multi- story building and that was happening all over New York as you know the development of Chelsea was very much a part of that but it was starting to happen in Harlem too
0: yeah that's a big problem in New York yeah
1: yeah and uh it got to a point where it was like I would encounter an artist I wanted to work with and I couldn't offer them a show in a year's time because I didn't know if I was going to have the space Mm -hmm. and and I think that creatively was the decision for me of okay look I could. I could really stop this. The other thing I think that remains to be said, which we haven't talked about because we've just been talking about the gallery and the gallery ecosystem, but independent.
0: Oh, absolutely. We need to talk about that because that's such an important thing you developed.
1: So yeah, I mean, we're not even talking about in parallel, I had another project that I was doing with others, especially Matthew Hicks, my co-founder, mm-hmm. and Laura Mitterron, who's one of the co-founders of of the project. And we were, not only building independent, we were growing independent and we were expanding independent, the art fair. And I was basically at a point where I just couldn't figure out how to do all three things well, manage the situation in Harlem, manage a art fair in Europe and manage an art fair in New York that's growing like rapidly. And it just seemed clear that there was a bridge and there was a bridge at a time where I felt I had said everything I wanted to say in the gallery and I had done everything I know I could do. And to continue would have meant to have moved into a totally new kind of business, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: which was interesting, but not what I ultimately chose. I chose to walk across the bridge to the other project that I had been a part of and to lead that project exclusively which is what I did in 2017, 18. So it's now been three or four years since I retired. And honestly, I, I don't miss it at all. I think I really have said everything I want to say there. And I'm in a different part of my life where what I'm learning and growing about is helping other gallerists achieve success in the marketplace that is, that is new to them, that is unprecedented to them. And I think there's a lot more I can do being in the position for independent than, than I could be as a single gallerist in New York City at this point.
0: I absolutely understand that also because you started independent from the point to be a more creative, better art fair for galleries to support galleries. So you started the gallery to support artists. You started an art fair to support galleries And you are now one of the expert how to develop a gallery, how about the gallery structure and everything. You are one of the co-founders of independent. Probably you say a little bit how you started independent, but also which is a jump into the present. What can independent play for a role now and in the future under these very changed circumstances?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, when we started, independent was the brainchild of my generation of gallerists and our mentors, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: like, or people we admired, who reflected our values. So whether that's Maureen Paley in London, Mm -hmm. or Modern Institute in Glasgow. And I think this comes out of that thing you brought up earlier, when you're working with artists that don't fit in, uh, it's very hard to bring them to an art fair.
0: Mm -hmm, Exactly.
1: And uh, I was, you know, representing artists like Josephine McSieper, whose work is hyper-political and who works with non-traditional materials. I was representing Ryan Tricartan. I was beginning to work with Adrian Piper. So I was thinking through how this 20th century dinosaur called the art fair Mm
2: -hmm.
1: uh, is so critical to galleries in terms of meeting new collectors but it's so difficult to make it relevant as a place that artists want to make work for
0: absolutely
1: yeah so particularly artists that have a social political or technological agenda it was really a challenge and I was very curious about that problem because you know I was on the art fair circuit at that point I was lucky enough at that point to have been in you know the freezes and be on the you know selection committee of of a fair like Artissima and seeing the other side of how these fairs were put together and how they were organized and I was like this is bullshit like <laughs> this is absolutely Criminal, in my opinion, because there are great gallerists who are not getting a seat at this table simply because they don't have access to socially to a group of colleagues who are making these decisions. And that's absolutely. wrong. Yeah, that absolutely. is absolutely wrong. And, you know, I was also on the Art Forum Berlin Committee. Mm hmm because Christian Nagel brought me on early on, who's another mentor of mine and someone I greatly admire, uh, who I am able to have these conversations with also. And, you know, I just felt like here we are, we're all aware of the problems, but if I go to the bathroom and there's a vote happening, that person may not get in the airfare. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it just felt so unclear uh, and it was not transparent. And you never had any feedback of why you were able to be accepted or not. It was not merit-based at all. Mm-hmm. And, and I found it was really something that everybody was frustrated by, on top of the fact that you know the biennials were rising in prominence and number. And most of our energy as gallerists was in helping Artists in museums produce shows for biennials and museum shows. And I couldn't figure out how we could make the fair model work for artists to make commission work from. And I couldn't figure out how to make the fair limitations work for our generation. And yet, at the same time, if we didn't do those fairs, we wouldn't have the visibility we needed to compete. And it just felt like I couldn't see a solution. Yeah. And I knew it wasn't sustainable. And I didn't know how, because I was young myself, but I knew that we were all talking about it endlessly. And that's when a group of us decided to do something about it, which was, hey, there's this building. It's the former Dia Center for the Arts. It happens to be empty. We could potentially rent it and we could try something. And let's see if that something is interesting for artists, and for collectors, and for the issues at Mm -hmm. hand, and let's also see if it can be cheaper, because these costs were going up, and we did one fair, and it was unbelievable, I mean, the level of enthusiasm from collectors was off the chart, and to, they were just like, thank God, an environment that I actually want to see art in, (laughs) you know, and the European galleries and the u k galleries that came over were showing art that had no representation in New York at the time, so we were missing a huge part of uh, what was coming up in europe and and that was really welcomed and very well received and then the museums were coming and spending hours looking at what was being presented and it was really became. A true um, proposition, like a legitimately valid proposition. And at the end of the four days, everyone said, "Well, you're going to do it again, right?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I and 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 I said to everyone, "Well, who's going to run it?" And they're like, "Well, you're going to run it." And I was <laughs> like, "Ah, okay, sure, let's do that." You know, it was just you make those decisions at the time. It wasn't my big ultimate goal to own an art fair or be one of the few. Uh, women-owned businesses in the field, but it just sort of evolved that way. Mm -hmm. And we kept growing with the times. And fast forward to 2016, at that point, we had done five fairs, six fairs. And it was very much a hot proposition. I think in New York, people really felt very validated if they were invited to participate. A lot of things happened quickly as a result of that validation. Yet, we knew that we were not going to be able to be in that building forever and get the kind of rent that we needed forever. Mm-hmm. And that definitely came to an end. We expanded our project and we moved downtown and we competed like another art fair uh, mm-hmm. in that space. And we were able to maintain everything we wanted to do and still deliver a market that supported the changes and we were able to continue to harness the art market as it underwent those changes so that it was still profitable and valuable for artists and the galleries that support them to be there. And and that is something I'm extremely proud of because it was very, very difficult to go through the evolutionary changes of the art market during this time The costs uh, associated with running a gallery or a fair are ridiculous, and somehow we were able to still deliver value. And that's something that even today, you know, with the fair that we had, which was the fair right before COVID hit, which was a strange week for everybody internationally, you know, to to have the feedback even in 2020 when we did the last art fair uh, that. 67% of the sales that galleries made were to new clients Mm -hmm. is telling is, and I know that is a multiple of what the big blue chip fairs are doing at this time. I knew that we still even going into the biggest crisis we've ever seen with COVID that we were going in as the strongest player in the fair space, not the biggest, but the most sustainable. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now.
0: Wow, I see that it's one of the few models also when you talk about independent, when you talk about the gallery system, it's one of the few models that even deals with innovation because it's obviously everything's going to be changing and, and we have to deal with it in a positive and developing way. And how could that way look? I mean, I just saw that independent will have also new location.
1: Yes. Thank you for bringing that up, because I love to share more details about what we're planning. We did some things at the ongoing of the pandemic that I think have really informed the decisions we have now taken. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we did, obviously, was to check in with the galleries and to see how they're doing and what they need from the market that is shut down, essentially. Yeah. And this massive revolution in digital, which happened almost immediately, was a game changer for them. And so we have been involved in discussions with galleries as a confidant and a consiliary, and a system of support which has brought us much closer to the galleries and what they're facing. And they're facing very different opportunities and challenges during this unprecedented time. But there were commonalities that were beginning to form. And you have a real bird's eye view of the market when you're talking to 80 galleries across the world who are specialized in everything from South America to Europe to Asia. And beyond, and you really do form a an understanding and a bird's eye view onto what's really happening for them, what is working and what is not working, and what they're going to need once we come back. Yes. So that was the first question, and we continued and have continued to have that very intensive conversation. But the second thing we did was we uh, commissioned Claire McAndrew of the Art Basel Report of Arts Economics, who's the leading arts economist in the field to sit with our client base and invite them to share information with her about how they're thinking about buying, Mm -hmm. how that's changed during COVID, how that might look once we return, and how much they're spending and what they want to spend it on and what motivates them. And this was really the, I would venture to say, the first ever study of an art fairs client base. Mm -hmm. And that told us everything we needed to know. Yeah, It first of all, validated a lot of things that I knew were already true because we actually had the data to support the support these facts, but it also was our roadmap in terms of how we were going to come out of this. And because we have a very U.S. and New York focused fair, we wanted to actually think about the local first. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was as things we're not having a fair until everyone in this country has access to a vaccination. That's just number one, that we weren't going to compromise on the health front. We were going to do a fair. Once a vaccination was available, once there were 300 million million people in this country, once everyone has access to a a vaccine site, we can have an art fair, but not until then. Once everyone's children are in school, we can have an art fair, but not until then. Once Fortune 500 companies go back into the office, we could have an art fair, but not until then. Because those are the first things to go back, right? And then big events can happen after that. Yeah. Now that said, we're not a big event. We're a museum event in many ways. We mm-hmm. have a museum-like space, we have museum-like content, and we have museum-like capacity in terms of number of people. So we want to maintain that. But there's no point in maximizing the potential of that until those things happen first. And that was very clear in discussing uh the comfort level with the collectors who buy art at the fair, and how they want to come back. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Honestly, the election made a huge impact in our decision-making. Once Joe Biden was elected and had confirmed that he had signed the contracts to have these 300 million vaccines Mm -hmm. uh, available by July, we knew we could do September. And it was really that. But we had another problem, which was, where were we going to do the fair? What kind of space would be right for people still wearing masks?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: People maybe not necessarily wanting to eat inside? What would be the right kind of space where galleries teams wouldn't feel overwhelmed by the number of unvaccinated people that might mm-hmm. be in an indoor environment? You know, these are still things that are going to be with us beyond this vaccination period. So we made a decision that we were going to look for a space and we were so lucky and incredibly thankful and fortunate that timed with this search, the Battery Maritime Building, which has been a historical landmark in New York for hundreds of years, is now reopening to the public under the management of the Cipriani family. And they... Have just completed a hundred million dollar restoration of this landmark and it was built in 1909 as a ferry terminal for mm-hmm. people to enter you know this is a time before cars when there were horse-drawn carriages on the street and people were very worried about fresh air and people were leaving new york city to go to sanatoriums on the hudson to get clean air and Mm -hmm. to stay healthy and to avoid viruses and all this kind of thing and so this building was built with a nod to that clean air it's all elevated off the street it faces the water and about 25 percent of the space is outdoors Mm -hmm. so and the ceiling height is about 40 feet high
0: so it's very well ventilated
1: it is the most open it's almost like you know looks like fiac or the grand palais uh, except imagine 25 percent of that space being outside
0: so that's actually the perfect location for these times
1: it was the perfect location the only thing that we needed to concede on was the number of exhibitors it's going to be smaller much more focused 40 galleries which you know given the fact that our collectors come for an average of three to four hours is still really quality time and really quality offering for us so We're very excited about it. And uh, we can't wait to welcome it. We think it's going to be the first true reunion in New York City of the art world. And we're just really looking forward to sharing it with everybody and doing this is really going to be a fair for New York City this year and we're really excited.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, I think that that is the general idea that that it has to be more local and this will work out very well in in the parts of the world where the communities have a strong uh, artistic society um so you can do local more local events but still we have to stay international in our connections yes so um yes so how do we do that
1: well the galleries will be european and uk and Mm -hmm. south american if possible and then obviously New York and LA and, mm-hmm. you know, Chicago. And yeah, we are really, we have already confirmed galleries from all of those areas. A lot of this is going to be dependent on how particularly I am very worried about Germany. I'm very worried about France. I'm very worried about the vaccine rollout in the EU. I think yes. it's a nightmare.
0: Mm-hmm, it is.
1: I mean, I do have faith, though, that the EU is, you know, that it will get its act together. we It's just coming on very, very late. But I don't really think that for a lot of galleries, New York is somehow not an option for them if they don't live here. I mean, what what is important about New York is that it's not a local community.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: an international community that spends time in New York. And For a lot of our European and UK and West Coast galleries that haven't been to the city, this will be, this fair will be the first time they see their clients in 18 months. And these people are not getting on a plane and going to Europe in September for other fairs. So a lot of decisions right now are being made in the non-American community about how do we access our biggest art market and what's our timing? and everybody is making a different decision about that right now. And that's just the nature of what this is, and we have to play that out. But I do think you'll see, my prediction is that the fair season will begin in America in September in a modified form. And I think we do need to get back, and it doesn't have to be turning the water on full stop. You know, I think we have to gradually turn that dial. I think we'll get into 2022, and we're going to see a beyond recovery in the American market. I already see the recovery happening now. I think we're going to be shocked at the level of recovery and how quickly it happens. And I think we'll be in good shape to to start getting back to our new version of normal, whatever that is in 2022.
0: Mm -hmm. That would be something I really, really would like to explore with you, like the new normal.
1: We could do a second one. I definitely would be very happy to return and continue talking about the future because I think where we're going is far more interesting.
0: Yes, that's so crucial. I think that leads a little bit to the future. My, My last question to you is that in a recent interview, you stated what world we want to return to is a question we should all be asking ourselves. And so I'm asking you, what is the art world you want to return to?
1: I want to see a broader spectrum of gender, race, and class at the table, Mm -hmm. at the table of leadership in this field that I love so dearly. We have an amazing community. We have a talented community. The system is serving many and many more than we ever thought possible, but we have a long way to go. I'd like to see transparency I like to see an evolution of um, how museums are run. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I think that we are beyond overdue for changes, particularly in the way American museums are led and run. I'm happy that art fairs are taking on some of the strategies creatively that independent started. Mm -hmm. And I think that will continue. I'd like to see emerging collectors really see a roadmap for themselves and not just the billionaires, but people that are working professionally and have an ability to to be a part of this community internationally and should be and should be welcomed. And I think that will hopefully be something that we'll see uh, progress on when we when we get back to it.
0: That sounds like a very positive outlook. So um Elizabeth for now,
1: thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: You find more on Elizabeth and the Independent Art Fair on their Instagram, ElizabethDHQ and Independent underscore HQ, or on their website, independenthq.com. For more information on Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast, follow us on Instagram at Voices on Art and at Van underscore Horn underscore Dusseldorf. There you can also leave a comment visit our website van-horn.net and subscribe to Voices on Art on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice. If you want to, leave us a rating. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Danila Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect.